Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. Today I'm joined by Sasha. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. So I, I really enjoy talking to you and, and you know, we're going to get into the the weeds, I'm hoping, because you just find, I don't know anyone who finds politics as enjoyable and as fascinating as you, it seems. And you also seem extremely well-read and intelligent when you post about these things. Um, you know, I, I, I would encourage anyone to just, you know, follow you on Facebook if they want to know what's going on. Like, and you seem to provide such a good depth and be pretty good at being unbiased. So there's two main things I want to you know start on. One is why, right? I think you know even people ask me why I care about politics to the degree I do, and you just seem you know just enthralled by it, like so fascinated. And then also I'm interested. It must be kind of like the opposite of Christmas, but also Christmas with this like you know appearingly significant scandal that's actually going on in Canadian politics because Canadian politics always seems so like milk toast compared to American politics and even even this scandal could be but uh, like relative to you know anything that could come up with Trump and those things but it's still like a big deal right so I'd love to kind of hear about generally and then you know start on on what your take is on what's going on now with SNC sure so uh a little bit of uh, background about myself uh, for yeah. uh, any uh, any of your any listeners who are tuning in and wondering who the hell I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so yeah, my name my name is Sasha Forstner. Uh, you can find me on Twitter if uh, if if you want. That's usually a, a good place to track me down since uh, my Twitter account is public. Uh, yeah. That's Sasha spelled S-A-C-H-A and Forstner spelled F-O-R-S-T-N-E-R. My handle is just my first name and my last name. All right. Um, and I can post a link to that as well or post it oh, on wonderful. the description. So uh, obviously, David, you and I know each other from uh, from our from our undergrad at Waterloo. Yeah, we were both involved in student politics and saw the benefits of, you know, trying to make a difference through through those avenues yes or the futility of it yeah <laughs> the <Both>. wonderful world <laughs> yeah um, anyway uh i graduated from there with uh, my undergrad in political science um uh, where i minored in public policy and administration right now i'm just finishing a master's in public policy at the university of toronto which i i, I like to call uh bureaucrat school because that that's that's effectively what it is though training you to be a senior uh public official well or, or at least to, to 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 be to be a public administrator uh, hopefully yeah. with a track towards senior public official dumb mm. i have some classmates who have political aspirations some classmates who uh might aspire to be political staffers and some who yeah. uh want to work in the private sector consultants so we're not all bureaucrats in training but uh, okay uh, but that was that was definitely the appeal of it for me so um okay anyway to, to jump right into the question you asked you know why why a fascination with politics well yeah for, for, for me it didn't actually start with a fascination um about politics so much as it did uh uh fascination with and love of history oh um, interesting had as long as i can remember my whole life always always been fascinated with history um the thing is you can't learn much history uh for long and without colliding inevitably with politics yeah uh, 
since it's so it's so central um, to uh, it's so central to everything that has shaped the kind of society we are today. Um, I that didn't explicitly focus my attention on politics. I, I was interested in the history, so I was interested in some of the historical quirks that help make Canada what it is. I was intrigued by the fact that we're still a monarchy, for example, in 2018. I was so were intrigued. You, were you, sorry to oh, interrupt, sorry. were you always most interested in Canadian politics or world politics as well? Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question, actually. I think I, I started by, um, like the, the, the earliest books I remember reading about history um, were, weren't about Canadian politics or Canadian history at all. They were actually, uh, about, um, European history. I, I remember reading, a treasuring a, a, a book about the Crusades when I was a kid, mm -hmm. um, being fascinated by that period in time. Um, but, uh, the first time I really started paying attention to politics, it was Canadian politics. Yes. Okay. Um, and, uh, I, the first election I consciously remember paying attention to was the 2000 and four, 2004 federal election, okay. um, which pitted uh, then Prime Minister Paul Martin against uh, uh, rookie opposition leader Stephen Harper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, saw Paul Martin reelected, but with a minority government. Um, I think I was in grade seven or eight at the time so mm -hmm. i was i was pretty young too young to have really gotten uh well acquainted with the issues but uh yep. i remember i remember being quite gripped by the idea of the election um and what was it that gripped you particularly like the idea that this this guy got to run the country like was it or was it kind of more holistic than that i can't speak for my 13 year old self <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have no idea. I, I think it, for me, it was just um, innately the idea that there was a possibility at that time of a change in government. And uh, yeah. my parents were talking about it and I, I didn't really know much about the people or the issues, but uh, I, I thought the idea was um, intriguing. Um, eventually I would come, I, I think, to have slightly more sophisticated opinions about politics. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> not 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 then um so now I'll, 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 oh sorry now you you definitely have you know pretty thorough sophisticated opinions um when did it i mean i don't know if you'd consider it an obsession but like let's just i'll i'll use that term for your dedication to it when did the dedication really strike hold then sure um that's uh, so well. This is this is where student politics is going to have to enter the picture. Yeah, uh, I was already I, I I became enough of a news junkie probably after around the first federal election I voted in in 2011. Um, mm -hmm. Paid relatively close attention to what was happening there, um, and followed politics as closely as I could uh, after that. I, I wouldn't call it an obsession at that point. It wasn't something I was really spending a lot of time on. Um, but uh, student politics entered the picture, I think, about 
loosely a year after that, but not seriously for another, uh, almost another year after that. Okay. Uh, so uh, mid 20, mid, early to mid 2013. Yep. Which I'm sure you might recall was a moderately dramatic chapter in student politics history at Waterloo. I, I honestly uh, don't recall directly, but I'm sure I was involved in it at the time. <laughs> Well, well, you were on the board of directors, so I think it's safe to say you were involved. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that that would, that would be the uh, that's the era I'm thinking of. Yeah, but, it's all uh, just kind of a blur for me. <laughs> well, yes, 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 easy to forget when you were the drama. <laughs> oh yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> I well, I I kid, I kid, but um, yeah, but yeah, um, it, at the time. Um, this is this is my brief plug for student politics. Yeah. Um, on, on the one hand, it's terrible. It's horrible. Anyone who's thinking about getting into it should stay as far away from it as they can. Um, on the other hand, it's a fascinating sandbox, and the way things work, and the pressures and issues that push people one way or the other, and cause alliances to form and divisions to to, to push people apart, they, they really are the same. Um, uh, as as what happens in actual politics, but on a yeah. much smaller scale. Um, I would with... completely agree with that. Uh, even just like be even just volunteering and and having some small insights into federal politics for a few months, I noticed that it was running the exact same way. And like in university, I'd heard that student politics didn't prepare you for real politics, but I think if you paid the proper kind of attention, it definitely would. Yes. Yes, I, I think I think that's absolutely true. It depends on what you get into student politics to do and yeah. uh, how uh, how you've chosen to involve yourself. But mm -hmm. uh, there there is uh, room to play in that sandbox and to is, is sort of experience the uh, process of politicking, but also the process of making policy uh, yeah. in the sense of making changes that will affect people's lives in subtle ways mm -hmm. um, firsthand and uh, sometimes sometimes uh, much more directly and even consequentially uh, than what you have a chance to do at, in actual government. Yeah. So, so that I discovered was fascinating to me. Um, and I thought it was fascinating on a few fronts. I thought it was fascinating in terms of the... Uh, interpersonal dynamics in terms of the politics of it i thought mm -hmm. it was fascinating in terms of the uh, uh questions questions about governance que structural questions uh, yeah how you create institutions that interact with each other what rules bind people what actually causes people to follow the rules when they have the power in theory to play in bad faith and ignore them yep um those 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 were those are things that fascinated me then and continued to fascinate me, and I, I took a little bit of time off of school, um, circa twenty thirteen, as you remember. I was attempting to earn a math degree, yeah, um, but uh, that 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 didn't work out, and I failed out, and uh, around and I had a couple years off, or about a year and a half off, to think about where I really wanted to direct my energies and uh, uh, my attention and what I thought I could build a career towards. And I decided 
I didn't have the answers at the end of 16 months, but I, I decided that uh, political science was uh, what I'd pursue. And I've sort of been immersed in questions about politics and policy ever since. Uh, okay. Though, uh, as, I, as I've mentioned, I actually find... Um, I, 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 I actually find the policy side and um, the work that our uh, permanent professional bureaucrats do in that respect, um, if anything, um, more compelling than the politics, though the politics certainly makes for uh, a good drama and yeah. has a very meaningful effect on the policy yeah. in my way of things, in my opinion. Yeah. And I mean, I would say off that it seems to me, it's unfortunate, I guess, that people like you who would probably have the more honest intentions see the value you can bring behind the scenes. Whereas, you know, it seems that there's largely or, or, or at least somewhat largely people who want to do the politics <laughs> are separate from that. Right. So there's a lot of people who want to just do good work and try and help the country. And so they don't necessarily go into politics because of that in in the traditional sense so uh, this is I, I i i think to some to some extent you might be, i think you are par at least partially right mm -hmm. but i'm gonna because i'm i'm a cynical guy and i i do think politicians are very much thinking regularly about how to acquire power and yeah um, how to hold on to power and a lot of the calculations that go through their head aren't necessarily in the public interest mm -hmm. and that cynicism is all there and I, I think there's a lot of reason to take it seriously but I, I to set that aside for a moment this is I, I have my one defense of um, politicians at least in Canada yeah, um, I don't think this applies everywhere. Um, I'm increasingly convinced it doesn't apply in the United States. But yeah. um, my defense of politicians in Canada is, is I actually do think the vast majority um, across party lines really do get into it for the right reasons. Um, yeah. I, I do think most of them I, I've, I've had I've been I've been very privileged over the course of the last couple of years in this uh, degree this master's um, to meet with an awful lot of current and retired politicians and mm -hmm. senior decision makers at all levels of government. And yeah, I, I, I think they really do. I think there's a few things that are true. I think for the most part, they really do believe that they are doing good. Yeah. And when they stop believing that is when they start, re start realizing it's time for them to make an exit. Mm -hmm. um, I think they really do believe um, that um, they have the best interests of the people they're governing at heart. Yeah. Um, whether that comes from a place of uh, empathy or a place of arrogance is a, another <laughs> thing altogether. Yeah. Um, I, th I do think a lot of I, th I do think a lot of our politicians have egos, sometimes bigger egos than they should. Yeah. Well, it's a kind of a it is a slight requirement. You have to the nature of a democratic system is you have to think, you know, what's good for people. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's just it. Um, getting elected is in some ways it's it's a humbling process, but it's also, I think, an inherently didn't I'll, I'll use the word demeaning because I think it, it to some in to some respect it is you have to ingratiate yourselves to millions of people. Um, asking for their confidence in you, asking for their vote, um, 
and you have to put up with all sorts of things that they throw at you. I, I do have a lot of respect. I think there's a, I think, as you said, you're right. There are a lot of really good people out there who um, might help out the country by working in public service, might help out the country by working in uh, uh, the not-for-profit or even the corporate world um, or behind the scenes. But a lot of not a lot of those people who really want to get into politics, and I think part of that's the nature of the beast when it comes to the fact we have elections. I yeah. think there is something about elections, and something I think it takes a certain something to be willing to stand for an election and suffer the slings and arrows that the electorate throw at you. Um, yeah, and, and it's getting worse because I I think because you know a hundred years ago. Sure, some people paid attention to the election and that was it. Whereas now it's like, do I want to be a public figure for years? Right? It's not just during the election. It's it's consistently. It's you're a celebrity whether you like it or not. Um, and so it's, do I want to consider every day is a vote, right? Every day people are looking at you and assessing you and, and determining your worth. Yeah, there's there've been a few a uh, few transformative moments in our politics. Um, I think one was the invention of the radio. Um, yeah, we could start we could start broadcasting things like speeches in the House of Commons and campaign speeches for the whole country to hear. Mm -hmm. Our politicians stopped being, um, big, you know pictures in the newspaper and uh, written speeches, which had been vetted by editors, and they started being people who we could, whose voices we could hear directly in our homes. Mm. Uh, things changed dramatically again with the introduction of TV, especially televising politics. Yeah. Um, and you recently posted about now they're going to be televising the Senate, and what does that mean for you know potentially changing the Senate? Yes, uh, I think so. T t television, well, television automatically creates an incentive to be more theatrical. Um, yeah. There have been some famous instances. Um, U.S. politics, I think it was. Uh, I, I don't know enough about U.S. politics to remember who the which which election this was, but I I, I thought it was I thought it was with I thought it was when Nixon got elected. But it's one of the famous instances of one of the first televised debates in oh, and people who, presidential history. Um, I think it was when JFK got elected over Nixon, potentially. Oh, yeah. No, and, that would have been. Yeah, the people who listened on radio thought Nixon won, and the people who watched thought JFK won because Nixon yeah. was sweaty and he didn't like have a good stage presence. Yes, we have. Uh, we, we pay very. We. we, we, we see our politicians differently when we actually see them. Mm -hmm. um, so television changed that quite significantly, um, e even to the extent that you had Pierre Trudeau back in back when he first became liberal leader um, in the 1960s, talking about needing to campaign in a way that would go over the heads of the media, which uh, at the time was still practically, still truly impossible because um, the media was the only way uh, that you could re could reach the electorate without the internet, but there's our last yeah. transformation, which is the internet and social media, and the fact that now everyone, in a way, is their own editor and their own publisher and shares inform digests information that they mm -hmm. uh, can pick up from various different sources and broadcast it 
out to others in tons of different ways. Uh, would... Opinions rapidly, and a political career can uh, be destroyed overnight or created in a week. Yeah, I do think it's important. In my in my opinion, I try to decouple the internet and social media as two distinct things. Um, personally, I think that's reasonable. Um, but yeah, I do. I mean, that makes sense. And, and I do think that my experience has also proven to me that politicians, the ones I've dealt with, are good people who do truly want to benefit their constituents and the country. I had the privilege of volunteering directly with three different liberal MPs, and I'm by no means a liberal anymore. But all three of them, I was very convinced of, uh, you know, their good intentions and things like that, but they seem to be handcuffed by the political party itself. And so like that is where I think the problems come in with Canadian politics is that you have this other organization that is solely interested. Its business is power, right? And so I think that it it leverages good people because that's who have to get elected. But I'm I'm a very I'm extremely skeptical and pessimistic about at least the Liberal Party, but I would assume it's the same of the other two major parties. And I think that is where the people who just go into party politics as like a political staffer serving the party. And my, my experience with the like electoral district associations, uh, one in particular that I had to deal with, it was very much that. It was people who wanted to hold on to power um, and, and maintain their status. And that was it. And so and that was in stark contrast with the MPs I actually dealt with. I think I think there are a few um, dimensions to this issue. I, so the, the thing to remember about Canadian politics um, is, first of all, it's heavily regional. Um, you can't think about a Canadian public policy issue or political issue without also thinking, okay, so how do they think about this in Quebec? Mm-hmm. Uh, how does it play in the Maritimes? What's the way of seeing this? In Western Canada, what about, you know, on the prairies and in the Rockies? What about Western alienation? How, how does BC factor into this? Then yeah. there's the indigenous perspective. And you really have to consider how this stuff plays out um, across various regions. It's interesting. That, oh, sorry, go ahead. It's, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that, you know, I, I was involved in Ontario and Canadian engineering student politics as well. And in Canadian and like the Canadian Engineering Student Society, it was exactly that as well. There's four regions. And anytime you're proposing a policy, you really have to like think and talk to each of the regions. And they have they're often at odds. And but it's really like so amazing how distinct their personalities are as a group. And like and it really comes across. Um, it's even the even the then, experiment. yeah. The uh, other the, the, what all of that creates is uh, what what political scientists call a brokerage system, yeah. uh, which is to say that what that the ideas that work in government and the political ideas that uh, carry the day in an election um, tend to be tend to come from a place that appreciates those various regional differences and that's willing to make compromises and willing to occasionally go along to get along. Um, we tend not to be a system that rewards um, ide- um, what I want, I want to put, to put this somewhat delicately, but um, uh, 
ideological firmness. Uh, okay. Is we 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 like politicians who are not unprincipled. Um, in fact, we tend to be uh, we tend to punish the the truly unprincipled ones. But we tend to like politicians who are comfortable with multiple ideas on the table and are willing to bend a principle in one area in order to satisfy a principle in another area. Mm. Um, now that creates some compete that creates a, a big dilemma for politicians. And it's one that I find really fascinating, which is this constant interplay of competing interests. So let's say you're the, let's say you're the prime minister. So, so we're going to jump nice. through the part 20, 20 years from now, we're traveling 20 yeah. years into the future. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> you're gonna, so you, you've done the hard part, you got elected and now yeah. you actually have to govern. Yeah. Um, well, you think about all of the different forces that you, you, that you're faced with. First, yeah. you have your cabinet ministers who are running their own departments, um, who have their own priorities and ideas. You have your political advisors and staffers in the prime minister's office who are trying to consider um, political questions like who will our policies play with, but also um, how do we actually implement our platform promises? You have a public service, which is nonpartisan, trying to give you advice while, and implement your policies, and you have to keep a handle on them, but you also have to listen to what they're telling you about what the evidence says your policies will actually do and what's achievable and what isn't. Because if you don't listen, um, your poli you, you may run into risks you could run into disasters you could have avoided yeah um, at the same time you've got a caucus full of mps in parliament uh probably if you have since let's say it's a majority government you probably you might have 30 people in your cabinet like trudeau does but 150 mps sitting on the back benches who are who support your government and the agenda but they also want to forward their own parliamentary careers if they might even want believe they deserve a seat at your cabinet table but you of course can't give seats to all of them um and mostly they want to make sure that um the governing choices you make aren't going to screw their chances for re-election so they're going to put a lot of pressure on your party to do or on your government to do certain things that maybe the evidence is telling you you shouldn't be doing or maybe uh the various special interest groups and lobby groups lobbying you regularly are telling you you should or shouldn't be doing but see already there it seems like there's too many people caring about things other than just what is best for well and like well, for more than just themselves because even if you true. said like their primary concern was their constituents and you know sure an east coast versus a west coast and that kind of thing but it did it does seem that their primary concern is their career getting reelected, and it's like oh yes and no i, I use it as a shorthand um i i, I need to get reelected, says a backbench mp does actually mean, and this is this is supposed, supposedly the ideal of democracy. I need to do things that my constituents aren't going to hate me for, right? I need to, I need to be responsive to my constituents' needs and interests. Mm. And look, we had three weeks off last last month, and I went door knocking, spoke to a thousand different people, 
and they were all telling me that this one thing's a big issue. I'm worried this is becoming a big issue in my constituency, and that this, if your, if our government doesn't address it, I won't get reelected. So that that is a form of responsiveness in a, in a way that okay. it, it has a. It, again, as a, what a political scientist might say, is it, it captures people's preferences, um, even if it doesn't do it uh, directly. But that's all one side of the show. The other side is the party. Yeah. And you, I thought you, you were spot on um, about five minutes ago when you said the party is about acquiring power. Parties are vehicles for elections. Yeah. Um, so, within, so, so to be clear, the party isn't running the government. If you work for the political party, you don't step, you don't work in the prime minister's office. You're not on the public payroll. You're getting paid by the party who's funded by donations. Yeah. Uh, but it's a fine job, line. Yeah. The party's, the party has two jobs. Uh, job one is to fundraise so it can support the election campaign. And job two is to plan for the ele next election campaign and to be election ready. That means the party has the party's mission is to acquire more members, to choose candidates, um, and to figure out what people want to see in a campaign platform um, that will actually get that party's members re-elected to parliament the next time we have an election. And that means parties are always making that big that uh, somewhat cynical calculation because um, right what what can we do and what we, what can we do that will fit our brand and how do we yeah and should it go into our platform so, so that that's 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 a hard thing because if you again if you're the prime minister you've got probably every every once a month or even every couple of weeks you're the national campaign manager coming in from the party to hear it to get updated on what the government is doing or what it is you're hoping to do next and then breathing down your neck about what the party thinks will or won't get you reelected. Uh, you, when you that is just what the party says in the end, but right. It's if, 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 if you don't, um, it, it can be perilous. It's yeah. no, no government wants, no government wants to make decisions that will make it, that will put their opponents in charge uh, a year down the line. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess that is the it seems to me like the power has skewed too much to the party over the politicians. In in my opinion, both at a micro level and when I look at the politics and, and how it is overall. Um, but I mean, we could we can we could talk about this for hours. I, I'm more interested now in switching to, um, you know, why you're so why are you so interested in it and and the 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 level because you know the, these are the types of conversations that you know any everyone can have their service level but the stuff you get into sometimes is stuff that like i didn't even know existed and you can talk to like about the depths of why it's flawed or why it's not um so i'm i'm kind of interested in 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 that as well in addition and like why you think that's as important as this other stuff um that you know is a little more evident to the average person well i i think it's it starts oh i guess clarify your question um are, are you what what is it you're wondering about my interest in is it uh, my interest in politics my interest in policy making my interest in party dynamics 
Well, uh, I mean, the fact that you even have a list of interests related to politics that you can sub list your interests, right? But in particular, I'm thinking about um, like the way the governance actually works. Um, like you seem to have more knowledge than anyone else I know around the way the country actually runs and what specific bodies do and why and and that kind of stuff, which I think is so important, um, but so few people know about it. Uh, that's that's a, that's a fair question. Um, I I think for starters, um, well, there, there's a few a few aspects to this. Uh, for for starters, um, I've I, I'm I'm fascinated by the extent to which the extent to which um, government decisions can affect people's lives in ways people don't even know about. Yeah. Um, and I thought I, I I think there is an awful lot of power there, and I am just innately fascinated with the ways we structure power, how, how it gets wielded, who wields it, who actually has influence and who doesn't. That's part of the reason I'm so uh, fascinated by the bureaucracy. Uh, it was one of the earliest questions I remember asking um, myself was, you know, we, we elect these politicians who are worried about an election that happens in five years, but their second in command, their deputy ministers who uh, are the most are the most powerful public servants in government have probably been in government for thirty years yeah. um, at senior levels for ten or fifteen, and they aren't facing electoral pressures. They have to serve their minister in the government of the day. But as ministers come and go, and as governments change, how much power do these senior bureaucrats have to affect people's lives over the long term? Mm. simply because they understand how everything works they know where everything is and they've been there forever so that that's yeah. that's something i've been fascinated uh, about for a long time i actually did my undergrad thesis on a question similar to that one um but that's so uh, that's that's <laughs> that's that's a separate issue yeah um suffice to say it's more complicated than uh, some people might think um but uh yeah, I had the other thing that I that, that sort of shaped my approach to a lot of this stuff um, was watching. Well, quite frankly, watching social media um, in my early university years and watching the absolute hatred and vitriol some people would throw at their politicians and the ways that people would form these absolute opinions about who was good and who was bad and our and politics would become not a struggle of interests but a battle of good and evil and i remember yeah. looking at that stuff and thinking well that doesn't seem quite right um based on what i've been exposed to over the course of my life um and i i guess i i wanted I, I started to started to become tired of having to form opinions based on what I was reading that other people were saying, and I, I wanted to start figuring out how things actually worked and what was actually going on and what policies, um, what the policies themselves actually said. 
So I started diving into the details and quickly that all collided with my fascination with history. Um, again, okay, yeah. my, the earliest things I remember learning about weren't, uh, weren't policy issues or even political dynamics. They were uh, the, as I mentioned, the fact that Canada is still a monarchy and the, the quirky traditions we have around the, how, how the House of Commons and how the Senate works. Um, uh, traditions often that date back hundreds and hundreds of years to the British Parliament. Um, mm. I, and that, that, that stuff drove me forward first for a while. And uh, once you start pulling at one thread in this superstructure, you end up unraveling the whole thing. Yeah, that makes I sense. I in what you've unraveled. I think I'm overextending that metaphor. <laughs> but that makes a lot of sense. And I suppose, yeah, if you start to be interested, it's obviously this just behemoth of... It's just a behemoth, right? Like, it's a structure yeah. that has existed for a long time. And, and I guess it's still... It's, it's okay to have just one interest. Um, you don't have to be interested in the whole system. You don't have to be gripped by it all. I, I happen to be... Because I, I find the ways that institutions work together, I find the ways we establish norms and, I, and the rules we create for ourselves to be innately fascinating. A lot of people don't. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's okay, for example, if the thing you're really passionate about is um, inequality, for example. And to, if your sort of burning question is um, why we have so much inequality. Why are, why does the government not fix it? Why have governments routinely failed to fix it? Um, and you want to dig into that, then go ahead and dig into that. Mm. You will inevitably find that there's other stuff you're fascinated by too. And you'll learn about all that other stuff, but um, start with the thing that interests you the most and yeah. just start pulling. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, that's why I've, you know, continually tried to stay connected and in touch with you because I, I'm someone who's much more like you who likes that big picture. And, and so I find your holistic passion so amazing and, and, and interesting to me. And so when I graduated university, I, I tried to also make the switch from student politics to traditional politics. And what I actually found more fascinating was the idea of media and journalism. And so I'm trying, like, I'm at the start of really wanting to know everything there is to know about how that piece of the structure runs and that, like, industry as a whole, um, rather than the political industry. Um, and I have my reasons for that, but I also find the interactions so fascinating. Um, yeah, and so I... I I just I love that you're interested in the in the big picture and all of it in in that way. Well, thank you. It's uh, yeah, I I, I think uh, <clears throat> I I've had a philosophy for a long time that boring politics are actually usually healthy politics. Yeah, um, that's, not, that's not always true. Um, it's probably a cliche for me to utter. Hannah Arendt's phrase, the banality of evil, but that, that is a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, but uh, I, th I think boring politics can be bad politics, but dramatic politics, exceptionally dramatic politics, is almost never good politics. Yeah, uh, it's, it's almost always something that should worry you, um, and it's almost always destabilizing in some fashion. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's... Uh, I think that's I, 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 I think that's worth remembering um, 
especially in light of the as the scandal that's been rocking Ottawa the last yeah. few weeks. Yeah, and so I, I do want to jump to that. I just want to uh, provide one more. It, allow me to self-indulge for a minute, if that's all right. The, the reason well, I, right you know, when I was trying to, you know, when I was questioning my, my interest in politics after my experience volunteering in it and kind of knowing more about how it actually runs, I really had to think about what I enjoyed most as a student politician and, and what frustrated me as a student politician. And I actually remember most, you know, I ran a bunch of organizations, but I, what I actually enjoyed most was being chair. Uh, like running the meetings because I really liked knowing Robert's rules, trusting that it helped me run the meeting more efficiently. And that if the meeting was run properly and efficiently, the best result would come about. And I, and so I so much enjoyed that. And it turned out that when I was running the meeting and focused on the meeting running well and not putting in my own opinions, what I had, you know, what I believed to be good Overall, people did as well, and it was just about letting the gears turn as smoothly as possible. And so I really loved that, and that's also what I had been so frustrated about as a president or whatever else is when the meetings weren't running well because I knew like, I wasn't able to speak properly and this kind of thing. And so I tried to figure out where that role is in real politics, and, and it is the media, right? They're the ones who are supposed to be, and it's a far harder thing to do with, you know, 36 million people than it is to do with a room of 50 or 100. But that's the role they should be playing is the chair of the public dialogue. And I, I think they're failing to do that. And so that's kind of the why I, I you know, I'm following the path I'm following. It's because I was so fascinated by that idea of being the chair, the speaker, the one just trying to make it all run as smoothly as possible and caring more about that than my own opinions. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that I think that's a, a valuable thing to understand, mm -hmm. um, and to, and to and to understand where that stuff uh, fits together and fits together in politics. For me, the thing that always gripped me was uh, this idea about um, power as it's written on paper, and then power as it actually um, as it actually functions. Um, yeah. Uh, some one way of referring to it is uh, sort of your uh, capital P political power versus your small P political power. Yeah. Uh, the, the, with the capital P power being, for example, I don't know, look at a look at an at a an org structure for a government, right? The or for a, a major organization, right? The mm -hmm. president has a vice president who's responsible for this, uh, who might have a few uh, senior directors responsible for A, B, and C, and those are the things people are responsible for. And then there's an executive committee that makes some decisions, and then there's a board of directors who uh, makes other decisions. Except in reality, it won't actually play out like that. You, no. you don't. You can't tell that by looking at it on paper. You can't tell, for example, maybe. Yes, but the vice president, the president trusts the vice president absolutely on everything, and the vice president's the real power. Yeah, um, everything goes to the president through them, or um, the executive committee is really just a group that yes is the president, and the board of directors is all the president's friends, and so nobody knows what's going on. You, you, you that that stuff it, that stuff takes time to figure out. Yeah, and in a way, this the the, the the big P stuff shapes things and alters dynamics, but the little P stuff is what makes decisions. And I always just thought that was fascinating. And yeah. I wanted to, 
understand those dynamics a little bit better because I felt that if I understood that stuff better, I might understand people a bit better. Yeah. And so do you have faith that most of the public service is like because they would have a lot of the little p political power. Do you believe that they do have the public's best interests? Right. Like because especially you know, they'd have political opinions one way or the other, but they have to serve Stephen Harper and then Justin Trudeau, and they have to try and implement what is, you know, the, the will of the people through the elected representatives. But do you, do you trust our public service? While no organization of 250,000 people is ever <laughs> going to be flawless, um, and while there will always be people who um, are either there for the wrong reasons or there because it was the job they could get or um, don't really understand their responsibilities or whatever. Um, I, I really actually do believe on the whole uh, Canada has one of the best public services in the world. Um, it, it, it's, it's certainly, it's certainly consistently ranked as one of the most efficient, um, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it's uh, we, at least at the federal level, and it's not true in every province. I, I won't speak for the for individual provinces, but um, yeah. at the federal level, um, my experience, based on well being taught by numerous retired senior public servants, having a chance had a chance to interact with lots of current public servants, having actually been able to work a stint in the public service uh, during this during this degree, um, is is that by and large. Um, our, our public servants really do understand what they are there for and what they aren't there for. Yeah. Um, and uh, they do advise and implement with the best interests of the, of Canada in mind. Um, the peril, the pitfall that we have in Canada tends not to be uh, what is true in a lot of countries, which is corruption. Yeah. Um, you, there are lots of countries where if you want to get, for example, um, a discount on your income tax return, uh, it's then what you've got to do is go in and bribe the right public servant, um, you know, in a tax office somewhere. Yeah. Uh, or if you want your passport delivered faster, that's a bribe. Or we don't have that in Canada. Our, our public service is also one of the least corrupt in the world. Um, mm. The the pitfall we tend to have is just um, what you might call the bubble, um, some or, yeah. or the Ottawa bubble, right? Uh, yeah. Which is just say our public servants live in Ottawa. Uh, the vast majority of them come from sort of the Laurentian Valley area. They see the world in those sort of particular terms. Yeah. Um, that that's where our politicians are supposed to come in because our politicians who are, of course, the ministers the public service serves, are supposed to be able to say, no, no, let me tell you what it's like in my constituency in, uh, you, you know, rural Saskatchewan. Yeah. Uh, this is what people actually care about, and this is what we're going to do. They're, right? They're supposed to translate people's preferences into language the public service can understand. and That's important, and it, it's why, like, a good way to think about um, elections is elections aren't really a battle for who gets to make policy. They're a battle for who gets to control the bureaucrats. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Well, the fact that you have faith in them gives me faith, I suppose, because I, I wouldn't... I, I'd be surprised if anyone in my extended circles 
had a better frame of reference than you. So I do appreciate your faith. That's good. <laughs> I, 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 I like to think it's faith based on evidence in this case. Yeah, yeah. But, Not uh... <laughs> blind faith. Um, so now let's jump into, you know, this this corruption uh, scandal that's going on now. Um, you know, it's been in the news, I, I guess, far more than Justin Trudeau would like. Um, but I'd love to hear your kind of current take on it all. And, and if you don't mind giving a brief overview, I'm sure you could do it a bit more eloquently than I could. Sure. Uh, let's start with the overview then. The accusation itself. So the, the whole thing started with an accusation in the in a, a Globe and Mail article in February that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had uh, put pressure on his Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, Jody Wilson-Raybould, to intervene in a prosecution um, of a corrupt corporation to help out that corrupt corporation uh, who had lobbied the Prime Minister extensively um, and in the past had been the source of quite a few uh, donations to the Liberal Party. The corporate donations aren't legal right now. Yeah. Um, that was made worse by the fact that this company, SNC-Lavalin, um, is a Quebec company, and the part of the allegation was that Trudeau was asking his attorney general to intervene in the prosecution specifically because he is a Quebec MP, and he was worried that uh, if they were convicted of a criminal offense, it would be bad for his re-election prospects because the conviction could result in job losses. Yeah. Um, for, for to, to, to explain exactly why that is a scandal, um, I, and I think it's worth hashing out basically what how justice works in Canada. And I, look, I'm not I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to go super in depth about it. But mm -hmm. we're, we are a country that, as one of our foundational principles, believes in rule of law, um, which is, which is to say that means two things. First, it means no one's above the law, right? You don't yeah. get uh, you, you the you don't get to say the law, the, the, these laws don't apply to me because I have friends in high places or because I'm, um, you know, the prime minister or <laughs> the governor general. Uh, if I commit a crime, um, I'll be punished or break the law. I'll be punished for it just like everyone else. And that's the other aspect, which is that no, that everyone has to be equal before the law. Yeah. So it's not just that no one's above it, um, but two people charged with the same offense um, with this roughly equivalent levels of evidence should both be convicted and receive roughly the same sentence for it. Yeah. Um, or this, the same, maybe not the same sentence, but the same punishment overall. Um, and we trust our judges to, well, and to opt to make those decisions. And that that's, that's the third aspect of rule of law, which is that the judiciary has to be independent. And in Canada, well, in rule of law countries, that means the prosecution also has to be independent. Yeah. Because, and, oh, 
judiciary, prosecution, and police policing. I guess I, it's it's all three of those things, because and that that's to avoid specifically to avoid politics um, getting involved in justice. Yeah, uh, you you can't have a case where the prime minister says can call up the police and have them investigate someone who's been ticking him off right mm -hmm. uh, otherwise they'd always be investigating the leader of the opposition yeah um, you also can't have a situation where uh someone close to the prime minister is being investigated by the police and the prime minister sit, tells the police you know stop you're not allowed to investigate that person uh, but it also means our prosecutors when the police actually decide that there is evidence to recommend charges, our prosecutors have to be able to come in and actually press charges, even if it's inconvenient for the government politically. Um, yeah, and and that's where this issue comes in, I suppose. Yeah, well, that's exactly where this issue comes in. So to to, in, to enhance that independence, about uh, thirteen years ago, uh, Stephen Harper's newly elected government created an office called the Director of Public Prosecutions, or the DPP. Now, the DPP reports to the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada. Uh, Attorney General is uh, its own portfolio. That's the per So I, I should explain this too. So the, the, the Minister of Justice has two portfolios. One is to be Minister of Justice, which means making the government's um, justice policies. So that's changes to criminal law, um, the budget for the Justice Department, appointing judges, um, and other policy issues. Uh, the other is to be Attorney General, which is basically the Crown's lawyer. So the, the person who officially advises Cabinet on whether or not what the government is doing is legal and constitutional. Mm -hmm. uh, the person who is ultimately responsible for all of the government's uh, court cases. And the person who's ultimately responsible for the prosecutions that the government runs. But the attorney general is a politician, and so they don't involve themselves in the prosecutions directly, at least not um, typically in the 21st century. The director of public prosecutions is an appointed bureaucrat appointed through a process that's laid out in law, and they direct the various prosecutors on federal cases. And federal cases, of course, are fairly limited. That's uh, corporate prosecutions. So SNC Lavanai is a corporation that was charged with bribery, um, as well as things like maritime law, um, telecommunications, um, and a number of other stuff, other things, yeah. uh, tax law, for example. Um, but uh, the director of public prosecutions oversees that stuff. And there are strict rules for how the attorney general can intervene. But this is the important bit. The attorney general is a lawyer. They've, they're a, they are a member of a bar association in one of our provinces. They've passed the bar. They have to adhere to um, the standards of legal practice and legal ethics that lawyers police themselves on, that they're expected to adhere to. And that um, goes at odds with politics sometimes, unfortunately. It, it, it can. That means that on the basis of law, if the attorney general thinks the director of public prosecutions is um, completely out to lunch and for reasons and for reasons that have a grounding in law, the attorney general thinks uh, that the 
DPP needs to be relieved of a particular case, then they have the right to do that, mm -hmm. to make an intervention. It's never been done before, but they theoretically could in the most extraordinary of circumstances. Yeah. That was what Jody Wilson-Raybould was asked to consider, as we now know from her testimony. Mm -hmm. um, we know she did consider it, and we know she decided in the end that it would be inappropriate to intervene, and that was her decision. The allegation is that after that, um, the senior officials in the prime minister's office and the prime minister himself continued to place pressure on her specifically because it would be electorally inconvenient for them, but also because they were getting regular calls from senior lobbyists working for SNC-Lavalin telling them, please do this, you know, otherwise we'll move to the UK. Um, yeah. And, and that's, that's what effectively crosses the line, right? That's the scandal, because that is the prime minister, essentially, trying to insert his politics into justice, right? To basically, which erode rule of law. Yeah. Um, to say, my politics trumps your justice. Yes, this corporation should get special treatment because I say so. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's that's the part of part of it all that I find very worrying. Uh, my other reaction is uh, just been to the testimony. Um, I, I found uh, I've been worried by how the government has been attempting to normalize the behaviors, um, yeah. its behavior around this case. Uh, I've also been um, saddened by uh, the testimony of the clerk of the Privy Council. I know I talked about. Uh, the faith I have in the public service before, and that's all that all still stands. That's true, but I, I felt that the clerk's testimony was uh, very disappointing. The clerk is the head of the public service, for what yeah. it's worth, and um, and so his testimony seemed quite political, um, which I suppose is why it was disappointing and and you know off-putting to many people is because it seemed he was clearly advocating for one side rather than just discussing the facts and and presenting what he knows to have happened precisely um it's 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 worrying for a couple of reasons it's that uh it, it, it was very political i don't think he's a partisan for the what it's worth um a, a brief background on michael wernick and i i did have the privilege of meeting him once um but he entered the public service in the 1980s he served among uh, he served uh, multiple different governments he was uh, at a deputy minister level position uh, appointed to one by Jean Chrétien, appointed to another by Paul Martin, appointed to another by Stephen Harper, where he was Deputy Minister of Aboriginal Affairs and Northern Development for a long time. Um, and then uh, he became head of the public service. Uh, as clerk of the Privy Council, he has effectively three jobs. One is to be the Deputy Minister to the Prime Minister himself, so the PM's top uh, policy advisor, not yeah. top not partisan advisor. Uh, the second is to be head of the public service, responsible for the deputy ministers and making sure that the um, that the, the various departments in the government are being managed properly. Um, and then the third responsibility is to be uh, secretary to cabinet. So cabinets, so responsible for making sure cabinet competences are protected, responsible for making sure cabinet has the advice it needs to do its job and that its committees are running properly and what have you. That's an enormous responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, his testimony, uh, unfortunately, 
the the two the things that the thing that bothers me about it is it was um it was it was very very dramatic very opinionated um and and ultimately very political right it made a news story out of the clerk which should never happen politics should be left for the politicians yep uh, but then also reaction to his testimony um divided itself along partisan lines to the point where you had all the opposition parties in the house calling for the clerk to step down yeah um and what by the time that that happens that's where uh, i start to get very worried because hypothetically there's like there's an election coming up this fall hypothetically if there was a changing government um, the new government has to come in trusting not only that the clerk will serve them loyally, but also that the various deputy ministers who are answerable to the clerk aren't um, are also going to serve them loyally and aren't um, basically replicas of what they see as a partisan clerk. Mm-hmm. Um, and the worst case outcome that could possibly happen in a changing government in Canada is for a new government to come in and fire all the deputy ministers. Yeah, because then it's definitely putting at risk just creating partisan entities and then the next government comes in and does the same thing. That that would set back our government's ability to do anything and accomplish things for uh, probably half a decade. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something that would never stop happening. Yeah. And it would ruin our public services ability to trust that it could advise governments fearlessly. And it would mean that our governments would fail more because they'd be getting advice that was less independent and less frank. So do you think then, you know, my my first reaction to that is that politics is seeping in everywhere. You can't be a celebrity. You can't be anything without seemingly people expecting you to you know input your political beliefs so like is is the hope that just the public service are the world's strongest people that they they know that they can't and that they they shouldn't allow that when it's permeating everything else in society right now i don't know if that's uh, if it's if it's about hope so much um for the most part we still keep our public servants pretty anonymous mm-hmm. so uh so this was just one, like a it's it's a bad example, but it's it doesn't it doesn't I, I, mean I it's permeating. I could probably main, name more deputy ministers than you could, but uh, <laughs> I can't um, name any. I don't think. Well, uh, I even I I can only name uh, maybe half a dozen. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though you like, you can look up all these people's names. Yeah, it's, it's all in the public record. But uh, the point is, they're not they're they're not people who are in the news or in the media. Uh, and below the level of the deputy minister, we still have a very strong expectation of public service anonymity, okay. that public servants have the right to do the job they did um, and, uh, and, remain, and stay fairly protected for it. If I'm a, a policy analyst working for, say, the Department of Finance, and, I, and I'm asked to do research and write a briefing for the minister about, say, a guaranteed minimum income and its feasibility and how it could be implemented and whether or not it was a good idea and to make a recommendation. Um, 
that's a thing, an issue that lots of people have very strong opinions about. But I'll go write my briefing note, consider the evidence, try and make a recommendation that I think is in everyone's is is in the public interest. That'll work its way up a hierarchy in the bureaucracy, and there will be discussions with the people above me back and forth about the salience of what I'm recommending. Um, but and the, the minister will ultimately get something from the deputy that makes a recommendation, and the minister will make a decision. But this is the important bit. If the minister makes a decision and then announces it, or doesn't, because maybe the minister decided we're not going to go forward with this, mm-hmm. um, and the media wants to find out uh, what the considerations were and the factors that went into it, advice to a minister from the public service is exempt from our access to information rules. So that stuff would be classified secret and uh, redacted in an access to information request because ultimately the minister has to own the decision. That doesn't mean that everything is going to be redacted, right? There might be research, internal research um, reports and emails and stuff that won't be redacted and that stuff can go out on the public record. But um, the actual advice, right, what I as a public servant thought was best for the public, that won't go on the public record with my name attached to it. That'll go, that'll go through the minister, and the minister's a politician, and as the politician, the minister will take responsibility for their decision. So that allows our public service to stay, for the most part, still pretty free um, and pretty uninhibited. In ter- well, not uninhibited, but... Um, but you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. Not uh, for if you're if you're in a if you're in a government office somewhere working as a policy analyst, your first worry is you aren't swayed by public pressure um, so much, except in the sense that public pressure might be uh, making your minister antsy. Yeah. But that's not that's a very different sort of consideration. Okay, and so that's good to hear that. Uh, you know, again, there there is faith in the public service, even though you know so many people were kind of disappointed with with the that testimony. And so, I guess the the more important thing to figure out now is why, like, really, because a lot of people think, why should I care at all, right? I, I think, and and you know, the Trudeau government, I'm I'm assuming, is hoping that by the election, people either forget about it or that view. Per, is more pervasive. One thing I want to clarify is that, you know, I've, I've heard some opinions about like, why do I care if SNC-Lavalin bribed, you know, a Libyan government official or, or whatever? Um, I believe it was Libya. Um, like, why do I care about that? And I think it, it's important to realize that's not even what we're talking about, whether or not you think, you know, SNC should or should not behave the way they did in that system and that ecosystem it's more about what's going on here and now there there is a process in place um and even if you know even if you think they shouldn't be found guilty or whatever it it should be up for the courts to decide that not the prime minister or or the politicians that that that's that's exactly right so you have to separate the policy discussion from everything else so Mm -hmm. um the policy questions might be something like, should, um, you know, to what extent should foreign bribing foreign governments be illegal? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are valid points for and against on both sides. The, the four tends to be, well, 
you can't get foreign contracts if you don't buy bribe foreign governments. And yeah. the, uh, the against tends to be, well, the bribery in regimes like what the Libyan regime used to be uh, cause actual harm and are despotic and dangerous. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that's, uh, uh, it, but that, that's the policy argument. But that's a separate issue, and that's not what's on the table here. Um, <coughs> an easier way to think of it, so separate that policy issue, except for a moment, certain things just as basic fact, which is that this anti-corruption law is the law. Yeah, so it doesn't matter what the law was. It matters that exactly. a corporation broke the law. It doesn't matter whether exactly. or not you agree with the specific law because it was the law and they broke it. And how do we exactly. deal with people who break the law? Well, that, that's just it. It's, it's, a, it's a massive corporation accused of breaking the law on multiple levels. And it's not just one individual in the corporation. It's a whole corporate culture over years and years, even yeah. decades, that participated in corruption, that embedded corruption in its workplace culture right down to its core. And so the corporation has been charged. And the only people who have all of the evidence uh, in the case are the prosecutors themselves, right? The crown lawyers charged with taking them to court. Yeah. And those people are trained lawyers and they will make decisions as to what charges to press and how to press them and that's actually that is what is we consider fair in our system that is the treatment you would expect to receive uh if you were charged with a crime more importantly if you were if someone committed a crime against you that's the treatment you'd expect them to receive um from prosecutors yeah you wouldn't want imagine a scenario where uh, uh well let, let's see let's try 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 to use something closer to home but uh, imagine a scenario for example where it, a major corporation in canada uh, well let's i don't i don't know use use a, a big telecom company like bell or rogers because no one likes our telecom companies. <laughs> imagine there was some big criminal issue where it turns out that the entire board of directors and the company senior management were all involved in systemically mistreating employees um, and uh, forcing them to do criminal things and illegal things. And so the company was charged with a crime. Well, you would want prosecutors to figure out as trained lawyers how to take them to court and what to charge them with and how to bring them to justice. Yeah. You would not expect um, them to suddenly get a, you know, finger wag or a, a special secret deal um, just because the prime minister thought, well, you know, it wouldn't be very good in an election year for a major employer like this to suffer the consequences mm -hmm. of crimes. Um, right. You, you want the law to apply to corporations. You want the law to apply to everyone and you don't want an MP saying, well, you know, will I get reelected over this or will I lose my chances for reelection over this being the reason charges get dropped? Um, but if so that's want, often the reason that, you know, laws get made in the first place and policy gets made, then then doesn't it? I mean, being very cynical, if that's the reason a lot of people 
pursue certain policies is because they want to get reelected and certain laws, doesn't it make sense so, that they'd be doing the same thing so to the implementation? That, that's, that, that's another aspect of this. Um, and I, th I think it's worthwhile to speak to that because uh, SNC-Lavalin, uh, so the, the, the idea, the thing that part of this, an aspect of this scandal is that uh, what people are saying what Trudeau was asking the Attorney General to look into was the possibility of giving them something called a deferred prosecution agreement. Which was created DPA. for them. That's just it. So a DPA is a special way of deferring prosecution in exchange for an admission of wrongdoing and a fine, which, by the way, most of SNC's revenue comes from federal contracts, um, so they, which is tax dollars. Yeah. So they, that would be a fine they'd be paying with taxpayer money, but uh, let's leave yeah. that aside for now. That's a big um, other issue, yeah. But the, the issue at play here is that after an extensive lobbying campaign, um, uh, the government changed the law to create deferred prosecution agreements in Canada, which didn't exist before a year ago. Well, and so and isn't that even more, I mean, maybe not more alarming, but it's that to me is more alarming. They changed a lot for a company. Sure. So, so I, I, have, I, have, I have some, I have some mixed opinions on that. Um, on the one hand, I think um, there is, I think a whole discussion to be had about, lobbying the government when you're facing criminal charges and having the government make changes to the law that would be uh, a benefit to you retroactively um, in court. I, I don't, I think there's an ethical issue there we have to be worried about. And I think that's something that uh, this scandal is sort of uncovered and sh should encourage us to talk about. Yeah. Uh, but at the, at the same time, I think you have to understand there's a big difference between parliament changing a law and a and the political executive right the prime minister and some cabinet ministers hashing out a secret deal for a corporation the thing about parliament making the law is it 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 happens out in public right you don't make laws in secret you make them in parliament um it wasn't it, it in it, a it, budget bill yeah, it was it was in a budget bill, and you can argue that the methods they used to get it through were uh, suspect. But we're already critical of those omnibus budget bills. Yeah, um, but, but the bottom, this, it was there for people who yeah, wanted to it, see it. That it, that's exactly it. The bill was on the public record. It was debated in public by our public by our elected representatives. It was discussed at multiple committees. Um, and then it went through our second house of parliament, right through the Senate, yeah. uh, who had to consider all of those things again. And that 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 stuff isn't nothing. There's there's um, because mostly because that's what that system is there for. Part part of parliament's job is to decide to change the law. Uh, isn't the is sorry, but isn't the idea of a deferred like the the idea of this law is to enable company some companies to be treated outside the law differently it's changing the law to build in a a an escape for some people so uh i i you might you might hear a different take on this from a lawyer and i'm not a lawyer yeah but um i i think 
so there's nothing innately wrong with giving different tools for prosecution to prosecutors. You have to understand okay. a part of rule of law is discretion, right? Let's say you yeah. get pulled over by a police officer because you were speeding. The officer could give you a ticket and they're well within your rights to do it. But the officer could also let you off with a warning. And when the officer lets you off with a warning, um, that's something they're within their rights to do. Okay. It's yeah. not a violation of rule of law, um, but you did still technically break the law. You were speeding. Yeah. Um, so they've chosen to exercise discretion um, for all sorts of professional reasons, but those that's not politics, right? Yeah. If a police officer says, look, I'm going to let you off with a warning. Your record says I looked up your license or ran your plates and it says this is a first offense for you. Be more careful next time. That's very different than an officer, for example, pulling over Doug Ford and saying, "Oh, Mr. Ford, you know, you know, you're fine. Go ahead. I won't. I'm not gonna. I'm never. I'd never give a ticket to you." But I mean, the discretion one, one allows. The discretion well, inherently allows that more, right? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, and the, that's that's the the one of the things we always grapple with in our system and in public ethics in general is that you could never avoid these ethical dilemmas um, yeah. when there is discretion, but you also can't get rid of discretion yeah. because it plays an important role in our system. So, so that that's true here too. Um, and it, part of parliament's discretionary role is to be able to change the law. I okay. think it's worth. I, I think. I think it's. I think it's worth noting. So let's use a much simpler example. So we we just made pot legal. Yeah. Um, you know that actually happened. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things people were saying, uh, while the government was studying the issue and figuring out how to make its bill, write its pot bill, and then drafting the bill, and then just debating the bill in parliament, and then deciding on its how it would be implemented. Uh, one of the things people were stressing about was the fact that the police were, in the meantime, still arresting people for pot-related offenses, that prosecutors were still charging them with pot-related crimes, mm -hmm. um, and those people were still getting convicted in court and sent to prison. Yeah. Um, and uh, there were a lot of people saying, look, the government's promised they want that they're going to legalize this, so what are you going to do about all of these people being arrested, charged, and convicted now who in six months won't have done anything illegal? Well, the answer isn't for the – for well, these crimes are prosecuted at the provincial level, but the answer isn't for the provincial premier to tell the – instruct the attorney general, don't charge anyone with pot offenses. Um, because the federal government's going to make it legal soon. Because the law is still the law, and the law yeah. has to apply to us until it's changed. So the answer was to let Parliament change the law, and then after the fact, um, the government has the right, and they did this in public, and that matters, to look into amnesty, yeah. right? To say, okay, we charged and convicted you because at the time you did it, you broke the law, but now we are going to make it easy for you to get a pardon. We're going to forgive you for the thing you were convicted of because we have since decided par through parliament that that law was unjust and we've changed it. Okay, so, so we're going to forgive you, but at the t but we weren't we weren't making any special deals with you in the moment. Yeah. That's that's a big difference. Okay, so it's important, I guess, 
very important to note that even though it kind of tastes bad in my mouth that, you know, they, they created this law seemingly for SNC-Lavalin, at least they created it the proper way and it was through a public means and, and that kind of thing. What is yeah. more unseemly and, and the bigger stressing point is that they then, they assumed that it would be implemented in this case. It wasn't and then they weren't pleased and so they went and put heavy pressure. And so, yeah. you know, one thing that I'd propose is perhaps Canadians just don't, at large care because we're just consistently exposed to what's going on in the States. And even though this is for Canadian standards, a pretty big scandal in, in my daily news feed, it's nothing right. Unless oh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't even compare to the things that are happening in the U S. So how do we um, get across the actual gravitas <laughs> of this? And, and like, you know, there's been calls for, Trudeau's resignation. This is a like I understand. This is a really bad thing he did. But you know what? What do we do about it? You know that's 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 a, a tough question. Um, I, I think I think you can. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I, I don't pretend to be an expert in how to make people care about things. Yeah. Um, I think. <laughs> I think. I think, I, I think I don't think there's a magic spell that will lead everyone to draw the conclusion you want them to draw. I think the most you can do truly is put the facts out there, make the facts easy for people to get a hold of, and hope that they are engaged in their own politics enough to inform themselves and come to a conclusion and make an opinion. And so how do you um, think this will go then? So we have, you know, we had testimony from Gerald Butts, from Jody Wilson-Raybould. We had Jane Philpott resign. It's clearly, you know, causing a stir. Do you, how I, do you think, think it'll point, play out? I, I think, I think uh, at, at this point, the government certainly thinks people have made up their minds one way or the other. That uh, public opinion, that largely this stuff is permeated through to the public, yeah. and that people have decided sort of where they stand on it. And I think the government figures that that's I think also why the Justice Committee doesn't want to hear from more witnesses because I think they uh, uh, don't think that there's that it's going to uh, shift public opinion any further. That it, the, the worst thing they could do for themselves at this point is to just keep the scandal alive. Uh, to some extent, I think that's true. I think people have probably decided where they stand on this issue in terms of how it's capable of affecting their vote. But mm -hmm. that's only true if there really is no more information out there and stuff we don't know. And I think eventually that stuff will come out. Uh, but the end goal of accountability in our system isn't to put heads on pikes every time uh, people do bad things or something goes wrong. Um, it's, it's more just to force them to answer for it and force them to stand there and take the criticism. But has uh, he done that? Has he has Trudeau actually answered for it? They've, he's just kind of no. still talked around but it. This stuff doesn't happen um, overnight either. Uh, I'll use another example. Um, it's it's a very it's a very different example, um, but it was a it was a significant crisis in Ontario politics. 
Um, are you familiar with the with the Iferwash crisis? Uh, no, uh, not really. So, so if Iferwash was a major crisis um, in the 90s under the newly elected Mike Harris government in Ontario. Um, uh, Iperwash Provincial Park um, is traditional native land. Uh, basically, what basically there was uh, there there were a group of natives who uh, occupied the land in the park. The OPP got involved, and it resulted in the uh, first death of an indigenous person at the hands of the police um, in uh, close to a century. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was it, it was uh, it was a, a, a real scandal and a real tragedy. And at the time, there were allegations, rumors swirling around that the premier, that Mike Harris, had intervened directly in what the OPP were doing. Um, okay. So that that's why I draw this connection because it's this interference with police is another uh, breach of a rule of law question and part of the one of the things people were wondering about at the height of that crisis was um, did this death occur because the OPP were under a lot of pressure from the premier um, to clear the park for, for political reasons? Yeah. Um, and if it had just been police making decisions, police would it have resulted in the same tragedy? Um, now, I'm not about to pretend that this is anywhere near the SNC Lavalin is anywhere near the same scale of that. The two crises are very different, and the factors behind them were very different. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm trying to the parallel I'm trying to draw here. What I am trying to say is, uh, as soon as the crisis was reaching its end, then in the 90s the opposition liberals began calling for a public inquiry to look into what had caused the crisis and whether there had been political interference or not and demanding accountability. And the premier at the time refused to call an inquiry. Um, so there wasn't one. Uh, he can, had to continue answering questions from the opposition about it for, the, for years more, in, for, for years after that. Yeah. Um, and an inquiry was eventually called but it was called by Premier Dalton McGuinty on McGuinty's first month in office. Yeah, It was one of the first things he did. But McGuinty took office in 2003, so we're talking eight years later. Yeah, um, And the inquiry was the, – the, I've, I've read the inquiry's final report. It, it did very good work, and it did actually confirm that Mike Harris had um, – gotten on the phone with the head of the OPP and uh, attempted to intervene um, and that he he was putting pressure on them, that the, 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 the wrongdoing did occur. And what we good does that do us eight years later, though? That's the thing. Well, again, this is the question. of So there's is the you have a couple of questions here. You have political accountability, but you, you also have accountability in the sense of positive change. The inquiry made a series of recommendations um, many of which have been implemented. Um, okay. the, there are now, so the effect of the inquiry's findings was to create a more independent OPP. Mm -hmm. um, at least that's my understanding. Yeah. Um, that's, that is positive change. It takes time to happen. The thing that people would, the, the, the question here as to whether or not you think the system is working properly is would the, only satisfactory outcome of that scenario have been for Mike Harris to have been forced out of office. And 
I, I would I, even on that front, I don't think that that issue was that issue did not leave him politically unblemished. It was yeah. one of a variety of things that it began to feed a narrative of the kind of as to the kind of politician he was. Yeah. And along with various other issues while he was in office, um, such as, well, to name to name one big one, Walkerton, mm -hmm. um, which was another disaster under his watch. Yeah. Uh, it ultimately led to uh, his uh, a perception of his government that resulted in their defeat. Yeah. Um, at, at the hands of Dalton McGuinty. Uh, so uh, eventually, eventually the voters have their say. But it, the question is, how long does it take the voters to make up their minds? And I don't know that it's important that voters make up their minds in a month or in three months or in six months or even in a couple of years. Um, as long as we eventually are able to understand what happened, why it happened, and how we can prevent it. And as long as we get the answers and positive change gets made, that, that's kind of the important thing to me. Okay, that's I, I, that's a, I appreciate that perspective on it because it's very different than you know what's pervasive in society right now, but also that it is slightly different than the one I had had. Um, so, I, so I really do appreciate that. And so I guess what we're... What you're saying and, you know, or what I'm hearing with regards to this scandal is that, you know what, likely it's not going to, you know, we're not going to, we can't impeach Trudeau anyways, but it's not going to, you know, lose him his job. It's not going to really, um, but it's about so, this is a problem. It should not have happened. How do we make sure it doesn't happen in the future? And it's worth investigating. Well, and that's just it. A lot of it depends on what happens next, too. That that's you know if this story really is done and all of this stuff is in the past, then sure Trudeau will probably hang on. But you you can bet he's not going he's going to think twice before calling up the attorney general about a prosecution again. Um, the, Isn't the, the new attorney general going forward with the deferred prosecution? Nope that that isn't something that they've announced. Okay. Um, there's been no intervention in the director of public prosecutions job by David Lametti, the new minister. I thought um, I had read somewhere that there was. But... One thing you could imagine happening mm -hmm. um, because it's been so heavily politicized is that if he did intervene, hypothetically, the director of public prosecutions could resign and that, that would itself be a huge massive scandal. But I don't want to, I don't want to speculate about what might happen. Yeah. Okay. The, 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 po the point is, um, the, the scandal has affected the government's behavior, and that that matters. Um, yeah. I, I I think uh, isn't it, shouldn't we though hold? Because I I'd say that I mean I I don't know that much about the Mike Harris one, but that's him calling the OPP and and saying you know that they should enforce some something a little more or be more aggressive or that kind of thing. This seems to be full on corruption. And so, like, isn't that again? Isn't there some law, or shouldn't there be some law against that? And shouldn't he be held accountable for being well, corrupt? So, so that's that, that's that's a separate question, which is that you know the question is, um, like, it's one thing to play politics with justice, which is 
arguably unconstitutional and uh, yeah. something the voters should care about. It is another thing altogether if the particular way he played politics with justice um, actually broke the law. Okay. Um, because because the idea of judicial independence is an unwritten constitutional principle in Canada. Right? It's not a it's not a legal um, it's it's not a legal requirement. But the rules about how to intervene with the director of public prosecutions and um, how the attorney general's independence is to be respected, a lot of that stuff is codified in statute. If he broke the law, well, that's for the RCMP to investigate and decide whether or not there was criminal wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if and th- that isn't something that should take forever to do that is a, de- a thing that should be investigated quickly and a decision that should be made fast okay. um I, so that i don't want to pretend i am suggesting that our accountability so there, there's, there's different forms of accountability there's accountability for political wrongdoing which is its own kind of clumsy and slow process but it's okay for it to be clumsy and slow um, and then there's accountability for criminal wrongdoing and that stuff, that's criminal justice. And yes, we should bring politicians to justice if they break the law, um, because that's uh, absolutely out of the question. Um, on, on, on the political side of things, I think we have, it's, it's really easy. You mentioned the United States earlier. Well, it's really easy to look at the U.S. at... Uh, their Senate committees and their congressional committees. And those are oversight committees, right? Their job is to oversee the executive. Um, and so they, it is kind of a circus. Um, and yeah. it's it's a very different, uh, there's a very different set of expectations of the play there. Parliamentary committees aren't oversight committees, right? Their job isn't to oversee the executive. Their job is to scrutinize legislation that's before parliament and occasionally conduct studies into um, certain policy issues and areas of public interest. That it's it's a very different set of expectations and a very different way of ensuring accountability and Parliament's confidence in the government. Um, and I think actually it leads to a an approach to politics that's less um, le- less less about less of a blood sport. Mm-hmm. Right? Are, People love the theater of congressional committees calling a politician or a cabinet minister or a presidential appointee out on something dumb they did um, and completely flattening them and then them getting dragged through the press and sort of drawn and quartered. We don't typically do that to our politicians. Accountability Mm -hmm. does take longer here. but it also preserves our political culture um, and keeps it a little bit more stable and a little more cordial. I think that's just a theory. I could be wrong. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I do appreciate you sharing that. And so now I want to end with, you know, what what do you think the average person should take away from this, or like, and what do you how do you how do you expect it to end? Like, what what is your assessment of how this will play out, both in the public and in reality? I guess. Um, you mean the scandal specifically? Yeah, the scandal specifically. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think, well, I, I don't think it's done yet. Um, no. I think, so I, I think, I think public opinion has kind of coalesced, um, and it's coalesced, um, 
in a way that isn't very favorable to the liberals as you can see they've been trailing in the polls yeah um i suspect there is possibly more we don't know it's possible that there's also more the government plans to do it's not clear look david lametti hasn't intervened yet mm -hmm. it's not clear yet that he won't they've they're still dragging around their will stand up for jobs rhetoric um, which is a poor excuse for you when you realize Corrupting the ending is yeah. Um, so it, it's not clear to me what they'll do next, um, and if they do something more to keep this issue alive, then the issue will stay alive. I also think it's not actually the only case of the government um, screwing around with um, prosecutions for the sake of a wealthy yeah. lobbyist there's um, another I, one that's supposed to go to court soon or something right yeah so that the trial of vice admiral mark norman begins at the end of august mm -hmm. and there have already been issues there um uh, when it comes to attempt uh, alleged attempts by the privy council office which is the uh public service department at the center of government that's mm -hmm. uh that serves the prime minister uh, attempting to intervene in the prosecutorial strategy uh, allegations uh, and of fr frustrations publicly voiced by Norman's uh, defense or his attorney that uh, they aren't receiving critical documents they need for disclosure from the government. Um, so already they've been threatening to take um, Gerald Butts and... Um, uh, Michael Wernick and have them testify in court about this stuff. So, mm -hmm. um, so that I think I think that will also, and that's on the eve of the upcoming election. I think yeah. that will mm -hmm. drag a lot of this stuff right back into pu the public view. Um, and it, it, what what kind of matters in the end is how fresh this stuff is in people's minds heading into the election. It's yeah. possible there won't be any electoral consequences for Trudeau over this, but it's also possible that there will. Um, I would be very surprised personally if on October 21st um, he ends up with uh, another majority government. Yeah. Um, I think it's possible he might have a minority. I think it's possible one of his opponents might have be in a minority government position, um, but who knows? Yeah. Well, and I, I think, yeah, it's people were having a general bad taste or it was a growing bad taste to Trudeau. And then this definitely added another sour grape or, or whatever. And so it'll be interesting, yeah, to see if it play, you know, if there's more to this story and how that other one plays out. Um, so, well, I appreciate you, uh, you know, talking me through this and uh, letting me get some insights into your interest with the public service and all of that as well. I hope you'll come on another time and we can dive deep into some of your particular areas of interest because I, I would love to learn more about uh, all the stuff you write about and read about. Oh, I'd be happy to. Thank you for having me on this time. Yeah, no problem. And thanks for everyone who is listening. Uh, see you next time.